Interesting. Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the second day of Connected Educator Month. This is part of our kickoff. It is Thursday, August 2nd. We have a special guest. It's Douglas Rushkoff. Very excited to have um, Doug here. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, good to be with you. So um, if you haven't yet signed up for the Connected Educator Month, uh, email list, please consider doing so. That's at connectededucatormonth.org. Lots of fun activities throughout the whole month beyond these first three days of the kickoff, and uh, you'll get lots of good emails indicating what's taking place. So, um, uh, Doug, this is the form of a keynote, but uh, I'll let you guide me if you'd like to encourage participation or questions and answers. Um, so I'll turn the time over to you, but I am here and awaiting any commands you have for me. All right. Um, so those of you who've got no idea who who I am, um, I'm uh, Douglas Rushkoff. I um, have been writing books for far too long, just 20, 25 years now, about uh, the uh, emerging technologies and uh, what they do to our, our culture and uh, ultimately what they do to our civilization. Um, I'm both uh, very optimistic and enthusiastic about the possibility that uh, digital technologies offer us um, you know, as educators and as, as people, but I'm also, uh, I guess, deeply, deeply disturbed is too strong a word, but uh, um, disappointed, I guess, um, in how uh, blindly uh, most of us tend to use these things. So um, over the last few years, I've become a, uh, uh, less of an advocate for digital technology itself and more of an advocate for digital literacy. In other words, what's, what is the digital or, or network equivalent of literacy? You know, it's not quite reading or writing, but it's something else. Um, because as I look at it, you know, we got um, language, you know, however many thousands of years ago, and we didn't just learn how to listen, we learned how to speak. You know, then we get text, and we don't just learn how to read, we learn how to write. And now that we have uh, computers and networking, we shouldn't just be users, but programmers. And you can take that in a number of ways, either you know, as uh, programmers, actual programmers who understand something about code, you know, something about the code on which we're interacting, or at least programmers in the sense that we are um, using these technologies consciously and purposefully rather than accepting these technologies and their limitations at face value. You know, sometimes a piece of technology is limited because that's really the best we know how to do right now. And sometimes the limitations of these technologies are embedded in them by whoever made them. Like today, here we are using, you know, Blackboard Collaborate. Well, Blackboard Collaborate is part of a corporation that has very specific needs. You know, and what are the differences in Blackboard's needs from, say, Google's needs or from Mozilla's needs? And how do those needs end up embedded in these, in these tools? And how do these needs limit what it is that you or I or someone else might be able to do? And it's really hard to see those things um, without some computer literacy on the one hand, but more importantly, without the, the critical faculties, what I would argue are the kind of more liberal arts skills associated with learning and exploring an environment and thinking critically about what is this tool allowing and what is this tool um, not allowing? What is it, what is it repressing? Um, you know, what is it amplifying and, and what is it discouraging? You know, I even look at you know, our choice today. Okay, we've chosen to use um, not just Blackboard, but we're using video. So if we use video, it makes me uh, less apt to say, 
to use, you know, these notes that I wrote down, you know, things to talk about. Because if I use these notes, then on video, I'm sitting here looking down at these things and thinking, and that doesn't feel as as interpersonal as if I'm looking in this in this camera lens. But then I've got to decide, well, how much information do you actually get from me staring in this camera lens? You know, are we experiencing rapport or are we not? And thinking about technologies in these ways is really what I'm trying to train people to do and to train myself to do um, more and more consciously. Because I believe if we don't do that, if we don't critically evaluate, and if we don't accept that we are the best judges of whether a technology is working or not, and whether we've given it a chance or not, if we don't accept ourselves as the, the ultimate arbiters in that, then we're no longer educators, right? Then, then we're, no longer, uh, we're no longer doing our jobs. So I ended up, and I think this is why they, they invited me to, to speak, I ended up writing a book um, called Programmer Be Programmed, 10 Commands for a Digital Age. And in there, um, I sort of make this argument you know, that we have to understand these environments that we're spending all our time in. We have to learn what, they, what their impacts are on us and how they work, how they're constructed. Um, and if we're not, if we feel either, you know, too old or defenseless or tired to try to learn code and learn how they actually work, I, uh, I came up with these ten commands, which are in some ways are corollaries to the ten commandments, which really arose out of the invention of text. I looked at sort of ten commands. What are ten ways we can understand the biases of these media so that we can uh, deploy them more, more effectively, more consciously? Um, more purposefully. You know, when I uh, look at a kid or an adult, you know, and this is, I guess, true for us both as educators and as users ourselves, you know, I look at someone using a tool like Facebook, say, and as kids especially, you know, they, they think, maybe you guys do too, they think that Facebook is here, you know, to help us make friends. That's the purpose of this tool. And, you know, while that might have been, I don't think it was, but it might have been Zuckerberg's purpose from the beginning, thinking I'm going to help people make friends. You know, I promise you in the boardrooms of Facebook, they're not sitting around thinking, how are we going to help Johnny make better and more long-lasting friendships? Right? They're thinking, how are we going to monetize Johnny's social graph? And the social graph meaning all of the connections that we now have documented and all the order in which those connections happen, all the ads that Johnny clicked on, all the things that Johnny joined. How do we monetize that? In other words, who can we sell this information to and how much can we charge from it? And, and how many different ways can we uh, 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 present that material? You know, so in, in, if, you, if you look at Facebook um, critically, and this isn't even understanding the programming, but just understanding that it is programming, um, you start to see, oh, you know, we're not the customers of Facebook, right? We're the product of Facebook. The customers of Facebook are the people paying Facebook, and that's companies who are buying that information about us. So what, what my uh, uh, commands are, really, are ways of looking at digital media so that we can uh, determine more effectively, is this serving our needs or not? Or who is this serving? Who is the user? What is this program built for? What is it doing? And, uh, and is, it serving, is it serving my needs now? And once you really have that, um, and this is really the saddest part, is most of us don't have enough courage to decide when or when not to use something. You know, you're in a school situation and everybody's throwing, you know, smart boards in the room. And, oh, my God, i got to use this smart board that's covering up half my blackboard that I really want to use. Um, yeah, you can use it. You can learn how to use it or you can decide not to. Um, and that's also true of the technologies we use to network um, with one another. You know, I, I think networking is great for modeling activities, for learning behaviors from other teachers, from, for, for doing very specific kinds of collaboration, you know, the kind of collaboration that you can't do up close, the kind of collaboration that involves people who aren't uh, in your community or aren't in your school or aren't um, accessible that way. Um, but it's a terrible way to collaborate with people, with people in the same room. You know, and that's where 
uh, these kind of the commands or biases that I'm looking at, I think are, are useful to a group, particularly like you, who are now thinking about how are we as, you know, a nation of teachers going to begin um, to interact with one another. So, like the very first of these uh, of these digital commands is um, do not be always on, right? And what I was looking at was really the dimension of time and thinking is digital technology biased towards time in one way or another. You know, and most of us think of digital technology as speeding up time, right? Oh, it makes things go faster. And, you know, as I thought about it more and looked at how digital technology actually works, you know, it doesn't actually speed up time. Digital technology exists outside time altogether. You know, if you know how a computer program works, it's basically just a sequence of steps. And it will wait infinitely between one step and another until it gets a new command. Your computers were really designed this way so that they wouldn't differentiate between the commands coming from a person who might take, you know, a minute, an hour, or a year to respond, or getting its command from a piece of software or another computer, which would happen instantaneously. So really, in order to make all that um, the same, uh, digital technology lives outside time. It just lives as a series of steps, and it'll wait on a step and hang on that step until it gets what it needs to move on, and it doesn't care. And so the earliest kinds of uh, digital communications that we developed were what we call asynchronous communication, right? They were communication styles that were consonant with this asynchronous quality of digital technology. So it would be like um, the first place where, where I spent time was on a bulletin board called the Well, electro electronic bulletin board. And the way it worked back in the old days is you, know, you, would, you would turn on your computer, you would plug your computer into this thing called a modem that many of you probably still remember, that would then dial a phone number through your telephone line it would connect to a bigger computer somewhere that has a conversation on it. You would download the entire conversation. Then you would disconnect from the modem because we used to pay by the minute for our, our phone connections back then. So then you'd be back on your own computer. You'd read the whole conversation. Everybody's you know, writing in a paragraph or two paragraphs. And then you'd think about how you wanted to respond. You'd think about, do I have something to add to that conversation? And you could spend, you know, hours thinking about what you were going to say. You could spend overnight writing these two or three perfect paragraphs. And once you wrote them, you would then log back in, you'd go back on the modem, you'd connect and you'd upload your portion of the conversation back into the into the flow and you'd check it again the next day or the two days from then. It was a bit like, you know, chess by mail where you had all the time in the world to think to craft your response and put it on there. And it, it led you to be smarter than you were in real life. I mean, everybody in these conversations sounds, you know, pretty much like, um, they sound pretty much like, like uh, you know, the quality of Christopher Hitchens, you know, except you don't have to come up with it in the moment. You can come up, uh, uh, you know, you can come up, uh, uh, come up with it right, right, uh, Instead of having to come up with it right in the moment, you can come up with it in as much time as you wanted. So imagine an internet, and this is because I would argue we were working along its biases rather than against them. Imagine an internet where people sounded smarter than they do in real life. I mean, it's kind of shocking. It's, it's, it doesn't even make sense. But yeah, the internet used to be a place, and it still can be a place, where you're smarter online than you are in real life because you have all the time in the world. The same with email. You know, we, we tend to treat email as if it's a text message coming in that we've got to get to. You know, No, email, when someone sends you a message in email, they've relegated it to the asynchronous world, right? They've relegated to a place where time does not exist. So why do we feel the need then to put the clock back on those messages as if they are in real time? They're not, right? So what happens instead is, you know, we turned this asynchronous technology into a real-time technology. We, you know, take our iPhone and strap it to our body in some way that, you know, it's going to vibrate every time we get a message or someone tweets about us or there's a... So, I mean, so now we've got this thing vibrating in real time that we're trying to catch up with rather than having it catch up with us. And we end up with things. Have you ever, you know, heard of um, phantom vibration syndrome where you're, you're, you think your cell phone is vibrating on your thigh even though it's not even 
in the same room with you, you know, that is not a, uh, that's not a neurotypical uh, situation, right? <laughs> this is a maladaptation to technology. And it's what happens when we try to work against the asynchronous bias of a technology and bring it into our lives as if it's a real-time technology, which it isn't. Um, even, even this, I mean, I, I've got mixed feelings about using uh, technology the way we are, but at least we're trying to imitate here, we're trying to imitate a real-time um, environment, which is why I want to end up um, exploiting real-time ha by having interaction with you guys um, as soon as I'm done with this little diatribe, um, rather than just um, have you listen to a lecture by me, which I could have put on video and you could have downloaded from YouTube in your own time. Um, another easy bias of technology is its bias about distance. You know, technology, digital technology is biased towards long, whoops, long distance interaction and not towards up-close interaction, right? You don't want to be texting someone in the same room, but you do want to use it in order to be able to communicate with people across the country, say, in a forum like this. But I've been in, um, I went to a university in a state that shall remain nameless where they had, um, they had been doing a model United Nations class for years and years, you know, where kids would, kids, uh, college men and women, um, would, you know, dress up as whatever country they were from and they would meet in this room and they would conduct, you know, negotiations about, you know, putting up the, the, the wall or the fence in Israel or whatever. It was a, a thing that had been going on there for, you know, 10 or 12 years. And this year, they decided they were going to do it in cyberspace. So what they did was they had students who live, right, on this university and pay money to be in the dorms and all that. They came to a room, a big classroom, which had computers lined up on tables. And each student logged into his or her own computer, logged into Second Life, and then participated with one another in a Second Life simulation of their classroom. Right? Now, this is remarkable, right? So we've got real flesh and blood bodies in a room using a distance learning technology while they're in the same space together. Right? And they're taking photos of this thing and putting it on their, the bulletin of their school as if, look at us, we're on, you know, we're on the internet. No, they didn't invite people who weren't in that space. There weren't, you know, corresponding students from other states or other parts of the world involved in this thing. It was all this, only the students who were in the room together were able to do this, um, uh, were able to do this thing together. Um, so that's, uh, that's working against the, the long distance bias of the technology. And it's easy to fall into that trap, right? Because, oh, this looks cool and it looks better and maybe the students will be more interested if we do this thing. Um, but that's not really what it's, what it's for or how it's biased. Um, another one, another easy one is, is choice. You know, digital technologies um, tend to promote um, what I would call forced choices, right? We, we, everything in digital technology is a choice of, of one thing or another. There's, there's generally no wiggle room. If you've ever um, used a graphics program, there are these things called snap to grids where you know, you're kind of dragging something on the screen and it has to either be you know, here or here, right? Here or here. You know, it's, there's like no middle space. You know, when you could go to some setting and increase the granularity so it's not here or here, but here or here, here or here. But it's still a little bit of, there's still, you've got to choose this or that, this or that. Right, and that's really to, to because things in digital in in the digital landscape are discrete. They're one thing or the other. You know, it's part of why you know CD recordings are, are so annoying to a lot of people compared to say records. It's because there are these very discrete choices that are made between each between each sample, or any of the digital environments in which we spend our time. You know, they're they're constantly being being forced to choose, you know, am I male, am I female, am I married, am I single, am I this, am I that, what's your favorite this? You know, and we end up thinking that these choices uh, promote some kind of an accurate reflection of who we are. You know, the more we think about ourselves in terms of the choices we've made, um, and not all of these choices are um, intrinsic to the tool or to the, to the environment or to the job that we're trying to do. They're just choices that a programmer has forced us to make to conform to whatever database considerations they have. 
Um, another bias would be the bias towards um, complexity, say. You know, most people think that digital technology kind of leads to complexity. And I would argue digital technology, really because of these, these three other biases, digital technology really tends towards simplicity or oversimplification. You know, it's when, when you're forced to make binary decisions from a distance very fast, um, because of the way we're using these technologies, we tend to sort of to rush to conclusions. I mean, I remember I got an email from a student at a college where I was about to speak, and this was back when um, there was this big campaign to prevent uh, or to, to kind of stop leftists from educating people. Remember, they were you know, trying to figure out educators that were leftists and get them removed from universities. Well, there was a, a, a similar movement by the same group to um, have students challenge who was being invited to speak at universities you know, to see if they were right or left to make sure there was a balance between rights and lefts. So she emailed me and said, you know, I've, I've been to your website, I've read a number of your articles, and I can't figure out if you're a leftist. You know, can you please tell me whether you're a leftist so I know whether or not to protest your visit? Which I kind of loved it as a thing. Uh, and I thought this is such a great opportunity to engage with someone. So I emailed her back and said, you know, it's really tricky. You know, I agree with the left on some things, but I don't agree with them on others. I'm against sort of the centralization of power and, you know, the sort of the bureaucratic leanings of, of, of that. And I've got some problems with the labor movement and corruption. Um, but on the other hand, so I wrote her this sort of response and sent her to some of my books. And I said, my book, Life Inc., really talks about what I think of the corporation and the free market. Um, she emailed back and she said, please, can you just give me a yes or no answer? <laughs> so I emailed her back and I said, yes and no. Right? But the, the approach she had to the problem was, you know, very typical of, uh, it was pretty typical of this, um, of this environment, right, where we, we rush to conclusions and we want the binary answer. And that's sort of like, um, do I protest or not? You know, do I dumb, do I dig or not dig? Do I like or not like? You know, and it's right or left, exactly. Um, it, it's, it's very consonant with a value system that certainly politically we're finding out is kind of obsolete. It doesn't really work anymore. Um, but it's very, um, it's very tricky. Um, it's very hard to, to, um, I guess it's, it's just hard to elevate our conversations and our activity um, beyond these, these very uh, kind of binary oversimplifications if we don't continually challenge the ways that these technologies encourage um, that kind of thinking. Um, and then we, then we can be very comfortable, you know, relegating things to that and saying, okay, given that this is a digital space, it's going to be encouraging us to have more yes or no, or to have a poll. I know there's polling in this, uh, um, in this very software, you know. And when we look at a poll, we say, okay, well, so that's the bias of the poll. Because we're using this technology, there's going to be polling. It's going to be yes or no. There's going to be all these imitations of, um, you know, of reductive yes or no democracy. Um, how can we transcend those? Or how can we at least accept that those are going on and then um, operate beyond that? I mean, some of the other, and I'll just kind of summarize these, you know, some of the other biases um, I look at in, this, in, in digital technology is um, the bias towards scale. You know, whenever particularly people are starting businesses or any kind of an operation online, the question that they're always asked is, you know, does it scale? You know, does it, does it scale up, you know, how, how does this become infinite? There's this sense that if you're doing something online, it's not good enough if it's reaching a limited audience for a limited purpose. Um, but that's really not true at all. You know, the, a town can use a nice little Google group to do something just for it that doesn't have anything to do with anybody else. We're allowed to be uh, particular rather than infinite. Not every business has to be infinite. Not every um, not everything we do here has to be infinite. Not everything has to be applicable across everything at all times forever, right? Yet there's this uh, temptation that, that digital technology, particularly network technology, seems to provoke, which is, oh, how does my solution apply to everybody? And if it doesn't apply to everybody, then it's somehow it's invalid. 
right? So even if it's, you know, you come up with a thing or a way, you know, through digital technology that really helps kids in a special needs situation, doesn't mean that every special needs kid of every kind around the whole world has to be able to use that. Um, if it works for you, it works, right? And that's really okay, you know, and especially if we don't have the business imperative, right? And the business, whenever you try to do something for a business, you know, oh, does it scale, right? Is this everything to everybody? But it's not, right? And that's okay. Things operate on different scales. Human beings operate on one scale. Networks operate on another scale. And that's really, um, that's really okay. Right, there's a good question. It's really, it's interesting that with Connected Educators Month, she's saying in the, um, oh, he's saying in the, in the thing, does it matter we don't have thousands of educators logged into this session? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't. Right, because we don't have thousands of educators logged into this session, I want to use it for something other than pure one-to-many uh, lecturing and try to see, I mean, we'll see how many are here in, you know, in another four or five minutes when I open this up to, um, to see then how we, want to, uh, how we want to proceed. I mean, it's funny, one-to-many. Talk about, you know, when I've, when I've taught, and I really stopped because of this, when I've taught in graduate school, these days, and this is at you know, $60,000 a year graduate schools that will remain nameless. I'm doing a graduate seminar. When I was in graduate school, graduate seminars, literally six people, seven people with a professor. I've got 30 kids in kids. I keep calling them kids. I've got so old. Um, 30 kids in this room where it's supposed to be a graduate seminar. You know, I know this is off, off, off topic, but you know, I, I used to do the thing where you try to get everyone involved in the conversation, and now I realize, you know, it's kind of doggy dog. If they're in graduate school, those seven or eight kids that actually participate, it's become a seminar for them. And the other 23 who don't, they can watch. You know, and I end up having a reasonable seminar that way. But it's uh, it, it's broken. You know, that's a broken system. Um, so other other biases um, are are you know they're really simple things like um, openness, right? The digital technology is biased towards openness. I understand that no matter how private or whatever we pretend this is, what we're doing here, this is public, right? Even if we called it private, it's public. It's online. You know, I, I, uh, my students very often want to, you know, use digital technology, you know, post papers and have our conversations and all that. Um, it's not confidential the way a room is, you know. And no, I don't let students uh, um, record. Our, uh, uh, our seminars and record lectures and do all that. I'll put lectures online. That's fine. I've got no problem with that. But it's their work I don't want online. It's their questions. You know, they are not going to ask the same questions if it's being recorded online or if it's part of a blog or part of a thing that they can in a room. And even if they don't understand the distinction yet, it's up to us. It's up to an educator who has a, an academic situation, who has a private situation, who has a classroom to explain the difference so they understand that there are a few places left in their lives where they're allowed to experiment and not have it go on their Facebook record for their employers and their parents and the president and whoever to see forever. Um, uh, sharing and stealing. Um, you know, there's this, um, there all this confusion these days about, you know, sharing and stealing and protection and all that online. Um, I am, I am so, uh, uh, in some sense, I'm confused by the discussion. You know, the, the rule or the command I came up with is, you know, um, share, don't steal. Um, and, the question people often come up with is that the line between sharing and stealing is blurring, and it really isn't, right? Sharing is when we use something that people want us to, and stealing is when we take something that people don't want us to take. And <laughs> the distinction is it's not blurring the distinction between the two. What's blurring is the social contract between whether I feel like it's a bad thing to steal, right? In the real world, we don't steal. We don't, or at least most of us don't, right? We don't, you know, your, your student doesn't steal something from the classroom just because it would be cool to have that computer or have that, you know, that, that microphone. And um, uh, likewise, we shouldn't steal online. It's, 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 it's really that simple. It's a matter of extending the social contract to these spaces. You know, law is not what prevents um, people from doing mean stuff to one another. You know, and the, the last um, 
uh, of the biases that I look at um, is, is, is purpose. You know, digital spaces are embedded with purpose. You know, the kind of technologies that we're using today in the digital age compared to the industrial age, they don't just sit there like a shovel or a hammer or a lawnmower. Right? You program something into them and they continue on. They replicate. They change themselves. They continue to act after you know, we've set them in motion. And that's very different. They act and they modify themselves. These are not just digital technologies, but um, robotics, uh, nanotechnology, and now genomics, right, where you program a gene and then it replicates and then there's a species out there trying to keep itself alive and trying to make babies. Um, you know, unless you've copywritten, I guess patented the, the seeds in such a way that they can't replicate, but uh, most of them are, are, are programmed um, to continue into the future. You know, and when we are living in a world where the technologies we're using have purpose, where they're embedded with purpose, it's important for us to understand the purpose that we're putting into it. And the only way we can do that is by knowing the code. You know, it's really by understanding how this world is put together. You know, and if we don't, and I understand, you know, I'm 52 now, right? Or 51, I don't know what I am. Maybe 61, yeah, 52. Um, I feel on some level too old to really get it, um, but I'm not. You know, I'm certainly not too old to take a couple of months and understand the gist of how this works. I'm never going to be the programming equivalent of James Joyce. Neither will I be the literary equivalent of James Joyce. And I'm happy I know how to read and write enough to write whole books. Um, but but a, a basic uh, appreciation of how code works really does change the whole thing. You know, I'm not. Uh, I get criticized a lot for asking people to learn something about coding. And the main argument that seems to come against it is, uh, oh, well, you know, I, I know how to drive a car, but I don't know how to fix it. I go to an auto mechanic. Right? I'm not asking that you know how to fix your computer, how you pop open the laptop and change the power supply or, or solder inside it. I'm asking that you know how the programs you're using work. Right? So it's not really the difference between a, a, a driver and a mechanic that I'm looking at. It's the difference between a driver and a passenger. Right? If we know nothing about these technologies, about their biases, about how they're, how they're programmed, if we don't understand the way the digital environment in which we're spending so much time now, um, in some ways it's replaced the world that we live in. You know, if, if we don't understand anything about how that's put together, you know, we may as well be uh, Miss Daisy in the back of the car, you know, trusting Morgan Freeman, right? I don't think that's his character's name, you know, but trusting our driver to take us to the places. It's like Miss Daisy in the back of the car with, with curtains all around us. And can you take me to the grocery store? Oh, I'm sorry, Miss Daisy, the grocery store is closed. Let me take you to this one instead. How do we know? How do we know to trust? We have to, in that sense, we have to really trust the person driving us. And right now, I don't trust the drivers, right? I don't trust Zuckerberg. I don't trust Google. I don't trust Twitter, who's just, you know, deciding when to shut down who. I don't trust Blackboard. I don't trust any of these people. Um, you know, I trust the, the, to some extent, I trust the IT guy at, at NYU or at New School. Um, but how do I know to trust him? Well, I got to know something about what we're doing, about the decisions we've made as a university and what those decisions mean. Um, and that's where, uh, uh, at least if we're not going to learn how to program, the sense that the, the, I want us to be aware of the fact that we are programming, that the decisions we are making now have legacies, right? We are the generation, right, who is putting certain legacies in place, certain legacies that unlike other ones, unlike even buildings or infrastructure, don't just sit there, but legacies that will build on themselves, right? Self-modulating, self-adjusting, self-replicating, and self-preservational technologies are being put in place. So I want us just to do it mindfully, right? Because there's, there's an extra step uh, that we haven't had to contend with before that most of us are kind of taking for granted or 
um, uh, uh, relegating this responsibility to people who aren't really that aware of it themselves, to people who are, are pretty much see themselves as mechanics carrying out our will um, when we're not fully articulating um, how we want things to be. So, um, all right, let's see what, what we got going on here. Steve, you can come back into this thing. I'm trying to make my... I my never left. <laughs> ...room bigger. Oh, I know you didn't leave. But I mean into the... into my. Con it's, it's hard. I mean, you, when, when you're doing this from this end, you're just... I'm in the, my basement, right? I'm in my office. My wife's upstairs. You know, there's no... I'm trying to, without my glasses, read the... Because uh, uh, I can't really be seen as well with them. Now I'm reading the thing. Um, I wonder if we can... Uh, what if we do this where... Um, you have a way for people to raise their hand in here, right? I do. Now, I'll, I'll, let me give one piece of advice right off the bat. I'm sorry I didn't do so earlier. You can pull the chat out. You just grab the top of it and drag it out, and then you can enlarge it. You can also use the menuing structure, I think, to detach the panel. Um, but yes, you can pull the chat out, and we can do whatever you'd like here in terms of uh, people responding. In fact, I think I'll give everybody microphone privileges right now, so you don't have to worry about um, hand raising, but if you want to ask questions and get responses, you can do so. All right. So what was, are, is someone, are they just to just jump in with audio if they're interested in, in talking or commenting or engaging? Perfect. Uh, but I'll let you drive that in whatever way you would like. Do you want to have people start asking questions? Yeah, or making comments or sharing experiences, or um, we can. I'm I'm happy to go off in a in a particular direction, you know, with your practical advice for anybody who's, you know, uh, attempting to, uh, uh, you know, develop a, a network approach to education. In other words, I, I understand that this that, that what we're looking at here with this group is less, you know, oh, computers in the classroom and all that. Then how can we, as the the educators of America, um, become connected to one another, and and what does that mean? You know, how can we begin to learn from each other and model uh, model winning strategies and and all that? And I guess um, if you've got you know questions about about deploying that or what you've seen so far, I, you know, I can respond to that as well. Why don't I kick us off? I'm interested, Doug Douglas, in the um, sort of this movement toward these massive online classes. And, and you've talked about the bias towards scale. Um, and it seems like, and I think you also talk about the importance of understanding that social technologies are social. Um, do you, do you, how do you address this balance or the tension between scale and relationships? And um, are we, is it important for us to, to remember to use the technology to build social relationships versus scaling? Um, you know, it was an interesting dichotomy you set up between uh, sort of online social relationships and and size. Um, I may be oh God. I sound so old-fashioned in this. I don't believe um, online relationships are truly, truly social. You know, I think that they're kind of social. Um, and there's a particular thing. I mean, yeah, you can meet somebody online, but, um, you know, I mean, we still understand 94% of human communication happens nonverbally, right? <laughs> and most online relationships are text. So it's a very narrow bandwidth. It's something, uh, it's something, it's something different. Um, personalized is a good, is a good word. But yeah, how, how, um, how personalized, how, and, and I would argue how real is the educational relationship? Um, or, or the communication relationship um, when it's a zillion people versus a few. Um, you know, and I've done both. Um, I've done, you know, a course for several hundred people online, you know, 14 weeks. And, you know, and in those cases, it's really much more a matter of, I don't know, even know what they're paying for at that point. I guess some exclusivity to content, you know, and I'll read their paper. Um, but you know i'm 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 not that much of a fan of the uh 
you know, the sort of the giant online accreditation uh, thing as a substitute for what we think of as education. I think it's great for skills acquisition and it's great for knowledge acquisition, but, um, you know, that's different than than education, than the education we're all entitled to, you know, particularly um, for younger people. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a super strong advocate of teaching kids coding, and at the same time, I'm a super strong advocate of keeping computers out of the classroom as much as possible, right? The, the, the class that computers should be in is the one class that we don't teach, which is computers, right? We're teaching kids in computer classes how to use software rather than how to use computers. And that's because we think what we're doing is giving them the job skills for the 21st century. The job skills of the 21st century is not going to be how to use Microsoft Office, which might not even be around in the 21st century, right? The job skill of the 21st century is going to be knowing how to program a computer. Um, so I want, I want kids with people face to face. But in terms of the, the, the scale um, and, and personal um, balance. It's funny. Um, AOL worked to deal with that um, very, very early on. Back when AOL was a you know a dial-up 2400 baud service, they would have some famous person come in, um, and uh, you know, and do some kind of a lecture or uh, an event. Like David Bowie is going to appear in AOL. And what they would do is you would you would be sort of randomly placed in these rows. You remember that? And have like a row of ten people that you'd be in. So you could talk back and forth between people in your row, and it wouldn't fill up a giant um, a, a giant chat. So I mean, I I I think the way to deal with these giant um, situations is for you to have your colleagues. Um, and the way to do the, the way to create your colleagues or your subgroup is through um, matchmaking technologies where you find out how experienced are you, how, you know, what are your particular interests so that you can have subgroups in a giant group that then work together. Um, and that's not, um, that's not rocket science either. But again, it's, it's all you have to do, as you're suggesting, is look at the particular situation and say, okay, what are the, uh, what are the biases of this thing that we're setting up? So if we're setting up a thousand person uh, event, then what do we want to do to create personal relationships within that? And that just requires, you know, setting it up, setting it up ahead of time so people can have, can have both experiences if they want it. Um, but the bigger something is, the sort of the more people that are involved in it, the less live I feel like it needs to be. You know, once the, 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 more, uh, the more like a lecture it is, the more it can be canned, which is like the, um, you know, what are those upside down schools? What do they call it? Um, where the teachers throw lectures up on, uh, it's flipped like an classroom. elementary school thing. They're like, throw the flipped, yeah, flipped classroom. You know, they're sort of, they're, that, that, what they're doing is saying, oh, look, the bias of me digital media technology is that sort of lecture thing. We can do that there. And the bias of the classroom is live interaction. You know, there's, I know schools that refuse to do any didactic learning at all. They refuse to ever have the teacher in front of the classroom saying, this is how you do that. Um, and while that's extreme, I, I like that because kids today get so little face time, so little interaction time with actual people. Right? You see, as soon as they leave the classroom, they're walking next to each other, but they're texting on their, they're looking at their screens, even when they're at parties. You know, I see the kids, what party are you at? Oh, I'm at this party. What party am I at? And if they finally are at a party they like, they just turn around the camera, and then they take pictures and upload it to Facebook, so they're never actually present. You know, for the classroom to be a place where people can become present um, is, is a terrific opportunity. I saw someone pop in a second. We did, uh, um, and we've had a couple of questions in the chat. Okay. Uh, Dawn um, asks, she says, do we think that digital and online learning is providing opportunities and flexible paths for understanding and sharing information in ways they have never been able to before? Are we opening up parts of their knowledge that weren't being accessed by traditional methods? For example, the shy kid who never participates in class but will share amazing things on a blog. Um, yes, um, we are. I mean, the 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 question, the dip, the, the oh, look at that! Someone knows how to use the the up hand interface. Um, 
Yeah, the, the, the trick is, though, then not to compensate, right? So, um, like I knew, a, it's a terrible example, but I, I know a synagogue that um, was always against the idea of having a uh, virtual service, right? Because, you know, oh, there's going to be cameras on Shabbat and all that. But they put one in, and that way, you know, old people and handicapped people um, could more easily attend the service, right, by watching it on their computer. But then the problem is now we as a community now no longer feel as obligated to get to that old person's home and get them in our, our car and get them to the synagogue. So um, as long as we don't end up um, using it as an easy way to, uh, to compensate, or to uh, uh, you know to compensate for the failing, um, as opposed to uh, uh, see, you know, what we need to do is see it as oh my this kid really does have something important to say. In other words, we use it as a way to realize it's even more incumbent upon us to figure out how do we now bring that kid's ideas into the conversation that we can use the blog or this tool as a a, a bridge towards um, towards something better. Um, the other thing that it's great for is I, I just started actually working with this, um, this I guess it's a company or an effort called Code Academy, which is an online learning environment to teach people how to code. And when you have all the data of how somebody's moving through something, you know, you can and should, you know, have the software respond to what are their, you know, what are their learning areas, what's working and what's and what's not working. You know, it's not just a matter of having a, a, a dashboard through which we can see where are they excelling and where they where are they not. And I know that all these reading programs and different things online, you can see, oh, they're good at comprehension, but they're not good at this, or they're good at recall, but they're not good at analysis. Um, that's all great, but um, the, the, the beauty of the, of the online environment or the, the digital environment is then the course can and should adjust itself to that person's weaknesses. It understands what knowledge can we now assume is understood and what knowledge do we need to keep coming back to. So you take something like, um, you know, an, uh, an everyday math, you know, cyclone technique, um, but you know you can stop bombarding with that certain thing once it's really been, been fully integrated and you can move on. So people can, can move through something in a, in a customized way. Certainly for that, that, you know, pure, you know, knowledge acquisition. Um, a lot of that can be can be offloaded and and customized in a way that we just can't do when we're standing in front of a classroom trying to bring 25 people along um, in exactly the same order. So let's give Thomas the chance to grab the mic since he yeah. did raise his hand. So Thomas, I turned your mic off just because there was an echo, but you can looks like you've turned it back on. Go ahead. Yeah, I heard that uh, you said you're a strong advocate for kids learning how to code. And I'm interested in trying to get my uh, own school district to get on board with that notion. Uh, besides the work that's going on at Georgia Tech, could you point us to some other places where they're doing that, right? Um, well, there's a lot of different ways. I mean, there's, there's Scratch is a one great place to look at. Um, oh, there's someone just said Scratch. Um, there's... Uh, I mean, there's a there's a lot of there's even you know logos was a fun one. Um, there's a a few you know I I if you go to um, uh, I kind of find uh, Rushkoff.com I, I I get asked this question all the time, and my memory starts to fail me. But I've um, I've uh, at at Rushkoff.com on programmer be program there should be um, a list I don't know where it is. Um, but I made a list. I mean, there's a lot of resources. Um, maybe someone wants to put up a link. I'm sure, Steve, you probably know. What's the link where, where the best sort of list of resources is? Um, I mean, and once, once you, uh, uh, yeah, I agree with Peter Z saying. Um, my approach to, to programming is for them to learn a, a what we would call a real programming language. Um, I'm into uh, you know, even, you know, you know, basic or Python um, or Ruby from a very simple 
perspective. I mean, Scratch and and Lego with, with Lego tried Mindstorms, which didn't really work. But Lego's trying some. I mean, it worked, but it wasn't. Our society wasn't really ready for it. Now Lego's coming out with something else, which may be interesting, uh, interesting as well. I mean, my view of it is really in fourth grade when kids learn long division. Um, long division is really the first. I think they still learn it in fourth grade. Um, long division is their first algorithm, right? It's the first time that they learn what it is, and then they learn a way to do something that's kind of by rote, right? Long division, the actual step-by-step -step process now is an algorithm that they follow in order to get the answer, right? With the line and thing and that. Um, once they've learned their first algorithm, I think that's the moment to teach them programming. That's the moment to say, okay, you see what you just learned how to do, but you just learned this series of steps in order to get the answer. That's what computers do. So now, let's go teach a computer how to do what you just learned to do. And that's the moment at which kids realize, oh, a computer is there to do that rote stuff, to go through a, I shouldn't be here doing a mindless activity. I should understand how that activity works, but once I get something to the point where it is an algorithm, now it's in the computer's province. So that's why I would love to, to even just take two weeks there in their math class and stop teaching math math and take that algorithm they learned and maybe feel repressed by on some level, because it's a strange moment, and say, this is what computers are for. But um, there's, there's good resources for that. So yeah, we've had several questions in the chat, and I've tried to keep up with them. Um, uh, Paul asked about uh, how would you suggest high school students best prepare for the new world since they're learning to program? Um, what would you suggest as a learning resources or path? Is your book one of them? Well, I mean, my, I think there's two things that high school students have to um, contend with. I mean, and one of them is programming as a technology, you know, programming as engineering. And the other is programming as a liberal art, you know, and as a, a theater and English and, you know, media studies person, I'm more from the programming as a liberal art side of things. You know, I want people to be able to read their world, right, to read the programming of this world and think critically about it. I mean, and that's where people, you know, reading people like me or Neil Postman or Marshall McLuhan, um, that's where that comes in. You know, and the fact that we are teaching, um, we, we, we teach, you know, literary analysis, but we still don't really teach a media, a new media analysis in America to a, to a very wide extent, is of concern to me now that reading is becoming, in their minds, more like opera compared to the actual media that they use. And then, on the other hand, um, yeah, I, I think that... Um, I feel like programming is 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 um, certainly as important um, as calculus um, to their to their you know, sort of understanding of how things are put together. Maybe uh, you know to some extent more so because um, you're going to find a lot more economists are going to be charged with developing an algorithm to uh, uh, defeat the stock market than they are going to be charged with you know calculus proofs of Phillips curve. So um, there is there is a uh, uh, there is an essential skill aspect to it, and there's also a um, you know, and most of the things I have to go to are about this now. There's a America as a, a defendable, competitive nation thing to think about. You know, if we don't have Americans who can code, um, we're going to lose not just our economic um, um, competitiveness. But our military competitiveness, when I go to the Army and the Navy and the Air Force, they've got tons of kids who are ready to fly drones with joysticks, but almost nobody who's ready to program them. You know, and when we are outsourcing drone programming to other countries, um, that's of concern um, in, a, in a world with, with some defense tensions um, left to work out before we all live in peace. Darren was wondering if there's a difference in the sense of responsibility we feel to people that we meet face to face and those that we connect with online. Yeah, I mean, it's part of the social contract has not 
extended um, to the internet yet. So people are fine to be cruel. I mean, it's interesting. I, I write these pieces for CNN, and CNN comment section is a cesspool of just horrible, horrible people saying nasty, nasty things. Um, but however awful they are, uh, when I actually show up in that comments thread, and I don't anymore because it's just too painful, but when I do show up, all of a sudden, um, I, can, I can almost see it. I can, their, their, their cruelty changes. Even if they disagree, even if they want to be mean, they can't quite be mean the same way once they're reminded, because they don't think I'm there. They think, oh, you know, he's probably getting paid millions of dollars to write, you know, this free piece. Um, I mean, meaning I, you don't get paid at all to write these things. Um, but, you know, they think of me as so, as so removed. And when they see a person come in and me say, well, I think I understand what you're trying to tell me, um, it's, it so shocks them that um, it reactivates some of their uh, uh, social, uh, so, some of the social cues. But most of us in the Internet space, we have to remember, you know, that that's what it feels like to have Asperger's or serious Asperger's, right? Because we're just responding to people's text. You know, 99% of the time anyway, we don't even see an image or a picture or anything. Right? It's just text. So we don't have this 94% of nonverbal communication that goes on. We don't have the ability to create rapport or pacing or leading or any of the things that, you know, neurolinguistic programmers have been, you know, looking at for the, for the last half a century. Um, so when you're in that space, you don't, your, your social mechanisms aren't activated, right? You have no sense of intimacy, no sense of, of repercussion, no sense of human connection, um, unless you consciously um, employ it, you know, unless you almost put a bumper sticker over your computer saying, remember, there are humans there. You know, we uh, uh, went to Korea when I was shooting this uh, documentary called Digital Nation for um, PBS Frontline, which is actually a great, a great resource for this community. Um, and they're teaching kids what they're calling, you know, netiquette in, um, uh, in Korea. You know, and these kids, they're like five, six, seven years old. They learn these songs. Um, and, and the song basically translated to, um, you know, yes, those are people there. You, you are my Internet friend. I know you have feelings. I know you are like me. You know, so from the time they're very little, they are being, they're being taught, you know, that the other people online are people. Um, you know, and that's their, their, their effort to try to sort of reduce the, the hate and the suicides and the stuff that goes on, um, on, on a, in a society that's, that's much, much more wired um, than even we are. Doc, I, I'm, I often will encounter an educator who, who teaches online who will say, I'm surprised at the degree to which teaching online has actually been a really positive experience for me. And every once in a while, an educator will say, I would, I would rather teach online than teaching in a class. I feel like I, I have a better ability to make connections with each individual student. Are, are there ways in which we can sort of thoughtfully find value in the online that we don't find in the real life? Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is, you, I mean, it's easy to teach online in some sense. If, if, Education aside, I mean, shoot, it's certainly easier for me to uh, teach out of my basement than drive to some school and have to be there and all that. Um, you know, and that's tempting on a certain level, especially if it's not even a lot. I mean, there's courses that there's not, not even any lecture. There's no thing where it's all, you know, we're just, type, just doing readings and then typing in a chat room once a week. I mean, it's crazy. Um, and I get paid for that. It's like, oh, shoot, that's easy. Um, what I've found, and it's always the hardest because no one really pays you. Well, no one pays you for anything these days. I mean, my God, what they'll pay. Um, you know, schools with 95% adjuncts, and it's crazy what's going on in education now. But what works best for me is doing both. You know, when I have, um, when I have real classroom time with them, and then, I mean, what I do, and it's just so much work, but, you know, students have to email me. Rather than using a blog, they have to email me privately a one-page response to every reading that we do every week. Um, you know, how are you going? What's going on? What are you thinking? So that I know before I get into that seminar, as we call it, that big classroom seminar, 
um, what everyone's reaction to this was, whether the students got it or not. With, you know, and um, yeah, it it helps a whole lot. But I mean, that the other way of saying that is doing everything you can and taking as much time as possible um, is going to help a whole lot. Um, it ends up, you know, the internet has made teaching um, not harder, but much, much more time consuming. I mean, I get, I get so much email from students, even students who aren't in my uh, classes I'll get, or students who I've had 10 years ago. You know, so it's like every student I have now is a permanent online relationship. I mean, and that's, um, that's a lot of work too, but, but absolutely. Um, you know, if you have the time, if you're being paid like a salary um, as a kind of a full-time teacher and you've got time to really do the work, um, sure, do both. You know, do both as much as possible. And students will take advantage of that. I mean, not I mean in a bad way. They will um, communicate with you and you can so easily see the ones who aren't. And then you ping them an email um, and it's a lot less threatening to them. Um, then going up to them after school, so will you please stay after class? I mean, why, why aren't you? You know, that's that's frightening for a lot of them. I want to respect your time. We're at the end of the hour. Shall we close? Um, I guess so. I mean, I let everyone know. You know, they can find me at rushcuff.com or read, read my book. Maybe the Department of Education will buy everyone on my book. Wouldn't that be good? Um, everyone in the world. Uh, um, or, uh, you know, you can find me. I, I've got a contact on my... Uh, 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 website, and I can try to um, talk to you about anything you want, or come visit me. I'm in, in Hastings, on Hudson, New York. You can have a sandwich. That was lovely. So we've been listening to Douglas Rushkoff, who kicked off our Connected Educator Day Thursday, August second. Uh, thanks, Douglas. Really oh, appreciate thank you being here. Clap, clap to you guys too. Okay, I'm going to turn the recording off. I well, hope everybody has a great day. Lots more coming up uh, in half an hour. Uh, there is another panel starting, so we hope you'll join us for other fun activities today. Thanks again, Douglas. Thanks.